we're looking at the 1984 classic Karate Kid today. Okay, Karate Kid. Any Karate Kid fans? Yes. All right. Um, this was the sleeper hit of 1984. There was no giant names connected to this, and it happened to be one of the top five highest grossing movies of that year. It was amazing. This movie here spun off a couple of sequels, none of which were very good. Um, it actually had a cartoon series. Did you know that? There was an animated series. It was even worse. Um, it had video games for Nintendo. Don't play them. And now they finally have redeemed it a little bit with Cobra Kai on Netflix. Um, some of you have seen that. That's great. And uh, so, listen, one of the reasons that I loved... Uh, this Karate Kid series, specifically this first movie, so much as I was growing up is because the lead character is a kid named Daniel LaRusso. And Daniel LaRusso, he's a teenager from Newark, New Jersey. And anytime you can get a character from Jersey, he flies out and moves out to California with his mom, and he brings, like, all of his New Jersey with him. You know what I mean when I say that, right? He brings all his New Jersey with him. They settle into this apartment, and like a good East Coast boy, he figures out where's a good party to go to. It's at the beach, because um, I guess that's what you do in California. You party on the beach. He goes to the beach. He meets a girl, and he strikes up this little fun friendship to which her boyfriend, Johnny's not a huge fan, right? So what Johnny does is Johnny, a black belt in karate, gets his little gang together, and he begins to torment Daniel. He begins to pick on him and push him until Halloween night when they beat the living junk out of him, and they finally have had enough. And when Daniel is at his last kind of point of, uh, you know, recognition of, you know, reality, someone steps in to rescue him, and it happens to be, you know, everyone would expect this, the apartment handyman from the apartment he lives in, right? Mr. Miyagi steps up and disarms this entire gang, takes uh, Daniel's son back, and then Daniel begins to say, would you teach me, would you teach me, would you teach me karate? I want to learn what you do. And finally, Mr. Miyagi tells him, and they share a pack, and he says, I promise to teach karate. That is my part. You promise to learn. I say you do, no questions. That is your part, right? And then he starts by giving him a bunch of chores to do, to train him. Does anybody remember any, like the first chore that he gets? Yes, he has to wax the cars. And, and, and which, 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 how do you wax the cars? You wax on with your right hand, and it goes in an outward direction, and then your left hand, and then you wax off with this hand. What are, what are some of the other chores that he gets? Okay, we got to paint the fence. Paint the fence is up and down, up and down. What else do we have? Oh, sand the floor. We have sand the floor, and that's, uh, you know, circles in this time. And, uh, you know, the last chore that he gets, um, this happens for days that he gets chores. The clip we're about to watch, Danielson is about to receive his last chore in his training. And again, he doesn't know that he's walking into a chore, and it's not what he expected. Let's check this out. Please. 
Spot. What spot? Hey, hey, how come you didn't tell me you were going fishing? You're not here when I go. Well, maybe I wouldn't want her to go. You ever think of that? You're karate training. I'm what? I'm being your slave is what I'm being, man. Now, we made a deal here. So? So? So you're supposed to teach and I'm supposed to learn, remember? Ah, uh, you learn plenty. I learned plenty. I learned how to sand your decks, maybe. I watch your car, paint your house, paint your fence. I learned plenty, right? Uh, not everything is as seen. I'm going home, man. Daniel-san! Daniel-san! What? Come here. Show me Sander floor. I can't move my arm, all right? What are you doing? What are you... Ow! Ow, what are you doing? Now show me Sander floor. How did you do that? Shut up! Sand the floor. Stand up. Show me sand floor. Sand floor. Sand floor. Big sucker. Sand floor. Sand floor. Now show me wax on, wax off. Hey. Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. Hey, wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Concentrate. Look in my eye. Lock a hand. Thumb inside. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on, hat. Wax off, hat. Wax on. Wax off. Show me paint a fence. Up, down. Up, down, up, down. Other side, look eye, always look eye. Show me paint the house, side, side. Lock wrist, side, 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 side. Show me wax on, wax off. Yes! Yes! Show me paint the fence. Cash! Cash! Yes! Yes! Show me side to side. Yes! 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 Show me sand of floor. Cash! Yes! 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 funny because as Mr. Miyagi comes back from fishing, 
he's totally cool with Daniel being disappointed, isn't he? he? He's totally, it doesn't matter that Daniel's disappointed. And everything turns in this clip when Daniel throws the pact that they made right back at him. He says, you know, I was being your slave. We made a deal. You're supposed to teach and I'm supposed to learn, remember? And, and in this moment, here's what I think is happening. I think Daniel perceives that he is a slave to Mr. Miyagi, right? That, that this is who he is, but Mr. Miyagi never, ever saw him that way. My heart hurts when I think about how many Christians, followers of Jesus, including myself at times, sound like Daniel when it comes to following God. We make a choice, right, to accept his forgiveness and his grace into our lives, but then when it comes down to following what he commands, we really just sit around and complain about it. We accept him as our heavenly, eternal Lord and our Savior, but we reject him as our Lord and teacher in our everyday life. I think this is because a lot of times we view ourselves as God's slave, not as his children. When, when we read his commands all throughout the Bible, and when we look throughout scripture, we see all these things that he says, and we're like, oh, these are all these things I have to do. These are my have to do's. These are my chores. This is my list. They might as well say, wax the car, paint the fence. We don't see the love behind these commands because... I'll uh, just be candid. I don't think they make sense to us sometimes. I think we look at them and go, this is just dumb. What's the point? And that thought process, I don't think this is unique to us. So if you're like, oh no, I, what's that mean? It means you're just like everybody else who has an awareness of what God asks and commands because I think this happens all over the Bible that people look at what God commands and go, eh. The Old Testament, let me tell you, it is, it is filled, filled with this. And God is constantly calling this nation that he has chosen and he's redeemed. And he says, you gotta do me a favor. At this point, would you, would you just stop complaining and start obeying? Would you, would you just stop complaining and start obeying? Early on in this nation's story, it's amazing to me, they have been uh, liberated by God after 400 years of slavery to Egypt. And as God has provided all of these miracles and uh, performed just unbelievable signs and wonders to deliver them, they find themselves walking through the desert and he's bringing them to their promised land, a land that God had said, you're gonna get this, uh, I'll bring you there. And so they're on their way there and as they get ready to go in, God says to Moses, would you do me a favor? And Moses is their fearless leader, right? Who also complains at times, but he says, I need you to get 12 guys together who are gonna go and spy the land out. Like go scope out what you're about to get and then have them come back and report. So each tribe gets their own head and they say, okay, you, got, you go. And so the 12 go in, they stay there for 40 days and then they come back to this tribe that's now in the nation of Israel, this giant tribe, and they come back and they report. 10 out of the 12 are completely freaked out. And they're like, nah, 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 you don't understand. We went in, we cannot go there. They have too many warriors. Their towns, they've all got walls. They're fortified. They, they, these 10 out of the 12 even say, you're not gonna believe it. They got giants. Like there's, there's real giants in there. We can't do this. And so you, do you know what all the people of Israel do when they hear this report from the 10? What do you think? What do you think? They panic. 
They complain, they start freaking out, and they don't want to do what God has commanded them to do, to go take that land. And this is when God punishes, and this is the reason God punishes this nation and says, you were in there for 40 days and you missed this land. You're going to wander 40 years in the desert now, and all the people that didn't obey the command to go into the land and take it, I'm going to wait for them to die out so this next generation can go in to do this. And when we read the, the Hebrew scriptures, when we read the Old Testament and look into specifically the, the, I love the book of Deuteronomy, we find that this is Moses' commands to this next generation. The first generation gave up the right to go into this promised land that God had for them because they didn't want to obey. And now Moses is saying, okay, guys, we got another shot at this and God's, God's going to give you some, some commands here. So it's like a restating of the commands and this is what God tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 11, in verse 8, he says, therefore, what, what, what's those six words right here? Oh, therefore, because everything that, that, that Moses said, therefore, be careful to obey every command I'm giving you today. So you may have strength to go in and take over the land you're about to enter. If you obey, you will enjoy a long life. In the land, the Lord swore to give his ancestors and to you, their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? If, if they choose to obey, here's what they get from it. They get strength. It's going to bring them strength. It's going to bring long life, both to them, their descendants, and to the land. The land is going to be blessed if they obey. God's commands are not in this moment to restrict them or to stop them. It's actually the complete opposite. If you line up and you were to take all the commands that God has for this nation of Israel in the Old Testament and you line them up with what the current norms for every tribe in that region was, you would be floored to say what God's commanding them is completely different in so many ways. It, it's, it's the opposite. If they obey these things, they will have a healthier and more robust nation than anyone around them. They looked so different from the tribes and nations around. What they ate, what they wore, even like silly things like how do I deal with mold if it's in my house? Oh, we got a plan for that. Why? Because God cared about these people and didn't want them to die in their house from mold poisoning, right? Like he, he cared about them. He cared uh, about how they treated refugees because when you're doing things right, people are going to come in. How do we treat refugees? This was important. How they treated women in trouble. Women had no rights in any tribe around them. God said, women have rights. They deserve to be treated as though they have rights because I created them. There's rules. You don't get to just do what you want as a man. How do you resolve conflict when you fight and what happens? Well, you can't just go like killing people. That's what the tribes around wanted to do. He said, no, no, we're going to have some, some boundaries to this. They had commands on how often they should be praying, how to sacrifice, what worship when they came together would look like. So many of the commands that we read in Deuteronomy are repeats of what he's already said. And just in case they missed it in Deuteronomy chapter 11, if we jump to verse 18, he says again, so commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your foreheads as a reminder. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. What does God want from his people here? He, he wants them to be intentional, right? That's the word I need you to get right here. He wants them to be intentional about remembering his commands. Remember it with your hands. Remember it with your heads. Remember it at home and on the road and when you're going to bed and when you wake up. And if 
they didn't get it yet in verse 22, just two verses down. He says, be careful to obey all these commands I'm giving you. Show love to the Lord your God by walking in his ways and holding tightly to them. Israel's obedience to God's command is really a demonstration of their love for him. It's a response to who he is. And they say, we love you, so we will obey. And just like his commands for them are a sign of his love for them, that he's protecting them and he has a great plan for them. And I know what you're probably thinking, Jimmy, that's like five verses in one chapter. And God, why does God say, obey my commands, obey my commands, obey my commands? Why does he say this so many times? Don't you just think they'd get it the first time? Yeah, well, um, when you were a kid, did you? Right? If, if you're a parent, you're a teacher, you're a coach, do your kids get what you tell them on the first time? Every time. Right? There's true teacher right there, right? I say it, they get it, ace everything. Do they get it the second times? I mean, how many times do you have to repeat yourself or even use that phrase, how many times do I have to repeat myself until it sinks in? How many times do you have to hear the question, why? Until you finally do what you swore you'd never do because I said so, right? How many of you swore you'd never do it? How many of you done it? Yeah, we're all there, right? I'll never do that. I'll explain things to my kids. I'm gonna, no, you just finally get fed up and you're like, why? Because I said so. You have a reason why you want them to do what you, that you're asking them to do. And at this point, it just doesn't matter anymore. You're so tired. You're so frustrated because they are complaining, not obeying. And I, I will, like, I'm not saying this. To, I, I had a trouble, had, have, um, a trouble with being neat sometimes. When I was growing up, I was not a very neat person. And so my parents and I had very different definitions of what neat meant. Each time that they asked for something, I would do it in my own neat way, right? I would do it in the way that I thought was best. Uh, sometimes, uh, not sometimes, most of the times, I thought every chore that they gave me was just dumb. There's no point in this, and I didn't see why they were important. Full transparency, how many of you here, teens, you know, uh, and you're like, Oh, I feel that way all the time. Yeah, you're lying. You're like, I don't want my parents to see it, so I'm going to do this thing. Liars, they all know because you tell them. You just want to admit it in front of church. We all know, right? When my mom asked me to clean my room, to me that meant I need to get everything off the floor. Right? That's what that meant. So I would toss everything out of my bed. I'd pack my closet, and I'd be like, done. Right? If I was outside playing and I came in and had no idea that I reeked because... I guess at 13, you can't smell yourself or something. But I would come in and they would say, uh, you know, go take a shower. And I'm like, but Super Mario Brothers is calling me. Like, I have, I have Super Mario 3 now. I got to really, you know, I got to do this. And they would say, you need to go take a shower. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I, I would actually, if I got really frustrated, run into the bathroom, turn the sink on, wash my hands, and then like do this with my hair and be like, look, I, I, I go, I'm good as though that was going to trick them, right? right? I, I just was, I got to get this done. When my dad asked me to mow the lawn, he's a very particular man. Um, having uh, come out of the Air Force, he liked things done a certain way, and he would say, it needs to be straight lines, whereas I'm mowing the lawn, and I'm like, Ooh! you know, um, I've got designs, my creative brain's coming around. I'm like, look, I could do swirlies. And, you know, he would come home and get really angry and say, I told you to do it this way. I mean, it there wouldn't be a straight line out there. It would frustrate him. He wanted it done a certain way. I could go on. I mean, dishes in the dishwasher, homework when I came home from school, making my bed, putting away my laundry instead of just putting it on the chair or basket or like whatever. Like, listen, I had no idea in those moments that they were training me. 
they were taking an all-over-the-place Jimmy, and they were trying to build some healthy rhythms that would serve me well as an adult for the rest of my life. Cleaning my room and putting my clothes away, it seemed so dumb when I was a kid, but I know that my wife is thankful for that now, right? I know that it makes a difference in my home. Learning that showers were not inconvenient, right? They were not just this thing that kept me from doing what I wanted to do. They were actually necessary for proper hygiene. And if you wanted to love the people around you and have friends, you know, um, you couldn't stink. When I think back to that lawn, I, I'm like, man, who cares? Until I realized that one of the reasons my dad had me going in straight lines in a certain way was because I wasted so much gas in that lawnmower. He didn't really care so much about the way it looked. He cared about the efficiency of doing things well so that I didn't waste so much time going over pockets that I might have got or I missed. It wasn't smart. And I started seeing these rhythms that my parents had created then that I didn't like, and I see it now. All those little things that I fought as a kid, I now realize are habits in my life that I need now in one way or the other. But how many times did they have to tell me until it set in? To be honest, they're still telling me because it takes a while to learn, doesn't it? I, I know that when they kept telling me, I complained, just like the nation of Israel all the time. I think about uh, in the book that we're soaping now in Isaiah chapter 28, we read this together where in Isaiah it says, this is the nation of Israel speaking. Who does the Lord think we are, they ask? Why does he speak to us like this? Are we little children just recently weaned? He tells us everything over and over, one line at a time, one line at a time, a little here, a little there. I, I, I get Israel's complaint here. I'm just being honest. I completely understand. God, why do you have to keep telling me, obey my commands, obey my commands, obey my commands, do, listen to my decrees, do this, don't do Why do you have to do this? We're older now. We're a better generation. We've existed for so long. We know better, right? But do we? do we? I realize that it is pretty easy to say that we believe, believe in God, that we have placed our trust in Jesus, and, and that we trust his commands when things are going pretty well in our life, that it's convenient, it works for us. In these seasons where things are really well, it's easy to lose sight of what matters most. I know that. It's, it's easy to lose sight of the things that we fear the most in those seasons. But this shifts when the unexpected comes, doesn't it? When the unexpected comes, things kind of get a little wonky. And I, I mean, we could just look at recently in all of our shared history in 2020, when this unexpected pandemic hit our world, it didn't um, unravel our value systems as people or as a nation. It did not all of a sudden send us into a spiral where everything got bad. Instead, it exposed it, right? It revealed our value system. Every one of us was in that same exact storm, but none of us could cover up our pain like we normally would. Right? Our everyday values, our everyday habits, they were all that we had at that point, and either they sustained us or they submerged us. Seriously. If you got stressed previous to 2020 and you had a habit of uh, coping with stress by going to food or porn or alcohol or entertainment, or whatever it was that you used to relieve that stress, those habits took on an entirely new life in that pandemic. They were revealed like never before, and they became almost unbearable, like weights that pulled us under. I, I know this. I realized 
um, in that season my own struggle with food, that I use food as a coping mechanism for stress. I just stress eat, and it took months to lose the weight that I put on so fast because I was anxious. I was stressed. I had no idea how much I struggled with this. I just thought I liked to eat when I was, you know, at the end of the night, I deserve this. No, I was stressed. If our marriages had certain habits in it and values, they were exposed. If you had a regular habit of date nights in your family or with your wife or your husband, and, and there you're having these great times when the pandemic hit, you were like, oh, jackpot. I get like months of date nights and this is great because it was a healthy rhythm. I played more board games uh, with, with my wife Eileen in that season than we, like it was like the first year we were married. It was awesome. I mean, we loved it, but I know that I'm walking with so many who used their kids, they used activities, they used work to actually hide from their strained marriages and those values surfaced when the unexpected hit. That rhythm that they had of running to something else now in the pandemic, they saw something they didn't want to see. Their habit was not what they wanted. We all had our values and our habits exposed. And because of my job as a pastor, I saw this acutely in the spiritual lives of our church and our country. Our spiritual habits and our values, or lack thereof, surfaced real quick. They just surfaced real quick. Some, you ran to silence, you ran to prayer, you ran to scriptures, because you just needed something to find hope and that was your rhythm because you didn't know what else to do and that's what you've done in the past. This is what your habit was. Others, you ran to rumors, theories, and Facebook threads because you feared the silence. You had no place to put that anxiety, no one to, to hang it on. You didn't even know where to begin to look for answers in the Bible when people said things and you're like, ah, I'm just too overwhelmed. You see, the unexpected has to be expected. And when these things hit our life, our values and our habits are exposed and they become glaring in front of us. And the question in these moments is how will we respond when those unexpected things come? What habits do we have? And will they ground us or will they sink us? Will they, will they allow us to find our steady place to stand or will they drag us into the deep? We talked two weeks ago when we looked at the Goonies about when Jesus told his disciples at their last supper, life's gonna be hard, get used to this. This is what's going to happen. He didn't tell them so that like, just deal with it, it's gonna be hard, but he told them so they would find peace, right? Each time they'd need when these times of trouble came, he'd, the goal was stop complaining, start obeying. Stop complaining, start obeying, just like Israel. At that same dinner, Jesus tells his disciples something that I love and I feel like sounds exactly what, what God tells this nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. Around dinner, John, his best friend, records him saying this in his biography. In John 15, he says, when you obey my commandments, sounds just like Deuteronomy, doesn't it? But when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my father's commandments and remain in his love. Jesus, uh, just pause here, Jesus is not calling them to do something he's not already demonstrated in front of them, right? He's not calling them to do something that, that he's been living this out in front of them. And he continues and he says, I've told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, you're, you're so that your joy would overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other the same way that I have loved you. I'm gonna say that again. This is Jesus' commandment. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way 
I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Doesn't this sound like Deuteronomy? Obey my commands and you'll find joy. Slaves, they don't find any joy in commands, will they? And Jesus knows this. So he continues and he says, you're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you're my friends since I've told you everything the Father's told me. Jesus does not call us his slaves. He calls us his friends. He does not see us as a slave. He sees us as his friend. He sees us as part of his family. And we know that when we're his friend, do you want to know how you're friends with Jesus? When you do what he says. When you live a life that looks like his. If you're trying to figure out like, oh, what's my relationship with God look like? What, you know, am I friends with Jesus? If I trust in Jesus, just tell me, do you look like him? Do you love like him? That's the easiest way to tell. And Jesus just calls him. He says, listen, just live life like I did. That's our call as followers of Jesus. A life centered around a love for God and a love for people. Just like he tells us in Matthew 28, when this disciple who is unbelievably unloved says in chapter 28, when he records Jesus saying, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. All the chores that, that you think are filled in the Old Testament, I'm telling you, all of these things, don't worry about all that stuff. Just hang it all on, can you love God with every fiber of your being and all that you have? And can you love people the same way? This is what we are training for. This, this is what we're training for. This is what, what we're asking God to teach us to do, is to love God and to love people. And this is what everything in the Bible points to. In, in The Karate Kid, Daniel and, and Mr. Miyagi, they make a deal, right? And the deal was, I promise to teach karate. That's my part. You promise to learn. I say, you do. No questions. That's your part. Daniel had no idea. No idea. He could not understand what Mr. Miyagi did at that moment, did he? So he just said, I'm going to promise to trust you. And then all the things that Mr. Miyagi asked him to do became a chore. They did. He had no idea that he was building muscle memory in order to respond to things that would come his way into the future. His perspective was completely off. He did not understand until Mr. Miyagi does that cool little thing that we've all tried on, you know, at some point, you're like, oh, it hurts, hold on. It doesn't work like that. But, you know, until Mr. Miyagi brings healing to Daniel, nothing makes sense. He brings healing, and, and, and then he says, listen, this is why the chores that I gave you are the best thing that could have ever happened to you. Daniel was training, and he didn't even know it. After Mr. Miyagi says, show me wax or paint or, you know, sand, he commands. There was one command he said over and over and over again, look eye, always look eye. Part of his training was to keep his eyes on his teacher, to look for his leads, look for his wisdom. You don't get that way if all you're doing is staring at the problems that happen in your life all the time. 
The teacher calls for our eyes to be on him. When Mr. Miyagi spars, Daniel unconsciously responds to the unexpected. And his face, I just love his face in this moment. This face tells us everything. This right here is the face that said, everything that you just told me to do I thought was a waste. I had no idea you knew exactly what I needed before I did. And at the end of this clip, Mr. Miyagi bows to him and he says, come back tomorrow because there's always more to learn from your teacher, isn't there? There's always more to learn. And, and in the end of that clip, Daniel walks off. If you watch it again, you'll see him walking off practicing his chores, doing his chores because there was something bigger to it. When we make a decision to follow Jesus, we become his disciple. He is our teacher. We can't learn from our teacher if we don't listen to what he commands. Let me just say that again in case you missed it. We cannot learn from our teacher if we do not listen to what he commands. And when he teaches his disciples, I, I mean, even in um, his uh, message on the mountain, right? He sits in, I think it's Matthew 5 to 7, when they say, can you teach me to pray? And one of the things he teaches them in praying is, you know, give me, Lord, my daily bread. Give me what I need for today, which was a, a reference back to Exodus when God provided every day for them. We need to have training in our life if we're gonna go look like Jesus. And it doesn't always make sense. And practically, here's what this means for us. I think it means that we need as his followers, if you made that decision to follow Jesus, to rethink the approach to some of our spiritual practices. I think it's time for some of us to stop complaining and start obeying just to be candid. Prayer, when we look at prayer in our life, let me tell you, this is not a chore. This is training our souls to be attentive to God at all times, to practice his presence, whether at work or at home. It does not matter, not just the times that, oh, everything's blowing up and I need you now. When we look at the life of Jesus, he prayed all the time, which made him ready to hear the Father's voice at even the most desperate moments. When we look at study and, and trying to figure out what scripture says, right? This, I know that, that, man, I hear this all the time. This is not a chore. This is not a chore. This is training our mind to remember the promises of God. We need this now more than ever, ever. Just like Jesus when he's being tempted in the desert, and the enemy comes at him and throws scripture at him, the enemy uses it wrong, and he's like, whoa, 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 let me, tell you, let me give you the right context to this. Let me tell you what's really going on. He didn't just say, hold on, let me pause and go back and study for a while. It was on his brain. Why? Because he had been studying. It was part of his rhythm all the time. Something like fasting as a spiritual discipline, intentionally not eating for a period of time, this is not a chore. Do you know what this is? This is training our body and our mind to get used to being denied what it wants. Right? We're all going to have moments where we are denied what we want. Fasting actually is this great discipline that says, yeah, I know that happens all the time. Not that I'm used to it, but it's part of my rhythm. When we talk about giving or tithing, this is not a chore. What this is, this is training our souls to remember that life is not about what we can accumulate. It's about trusting God regardless of how much or how little we have. Living a life of generosity makes a big difference when you lose your job and think, but now I have to hold on. And it's like, no, I've built a rhythm of trusting God. I will continue to. 
I will trust him. When we talk about celebration, what we do is we sing together and come together. This is not a chore. This is training our souls to see the goodness of God even when it's hard. This is why we celebrate every single Sunday together because we need this because some of your weeks have been horrendous. Others have been great, but no matter what it is, we come back to celebrate the goodness of God together and I need you to remind me that on some weeks because I don't see it. We do this together. We celebrate. The discipline of confession, this is not a chore. This is training our souls to be bare before God and bare before others. Do you know what confession does when we confess our sins out loud to each other? This deepens our empathy and our love for other people and their struggles too. Even when we look at communion, communion is not a chore. This is training our souls, our minds, our bodies to remember the sacrificial life of Jesus that he lived and that he calls us to live as well. These aren't chores. These are not wax on, wax off, or paint the fence. These are training for when the unexpected comes to our life, we all of a sudden respond through prayer or study. And when it comes to following Jesus, the question that I would leave you with today is, do you just accept him as your heavenly father, your savior, but you reject him as your Lord and teacher in everyday life? How much time do you spend complaining instead of obeying? These are not chores. These are training for the unexpected that comes our way. I want to leave you with three verses as we close today from the letter of Hebrews in chapter 5 as Jeremy is going to come and lead us in communion and celebrating Jesus today. In Hebrews chapter 5, would you stand with me as we read the word of the Lord today? Hebrews chapter 5, the author writes, You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic things about God's word. You're like babies who need milk and can't eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know what to do, or doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training, who through training, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. How's your training going? Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you call us to training, not of just obedience and doing the right things, but training in our love for others. Training in... You gave everything to learn to love your father and to love those around you. Even when you didn't agree with them, you could still love. And so, God, I ask for the great grace of the Holy Spirit to come on us that we would not have discipline so we could say, look at all the things I do, but when the unexpected comes, we would respond in love because of a rhythm of prayer, a rhythm of reading, a rhythm of generosity, a rhythm of service, a rhythm of of community and celebration. All these rhythms are not chores. They are gifts so that we would love well when loving is hard. Thank you for demonstrating that so greatly for us on the cross. Jesus, thanks. Oh, thank you.